It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. You know, it's funny. Yesterday, one of my staffers at Media Buzz suggested to me, uh, why don't we do an item on the latest on Britney Spears? She says she's going to start posting less on Instagram because she's fed up with all the negative media coverage. And I said, you know, and I've been following this whole saga. And I said, well, you know, I've kind of OD'd on Britney Spears. I think I'm going to pass. Well, an hour or two later, boom, major Britney news in the free Britney campaign. It just goes to show you can never have too much Britney. Uh, so if you haven't heard, this is actually pretty remarkable because, you know, she's been fighting this battle legally and in the court of public opinion to free herself of this 13 year conservatorship headed by her father. You know, she clearly despises and she says she doesn't have the freedom to do anything and so forth. And she had a lawyer who wouldn't really represent what she wanted to do. Meanwhile, she's out there busting her buns, making millions of dollars, which pays everybody, her dad, the lawyer, you know, all the hangers on and so forth. And she wasn't able to get that reversed legally. But yesterday, her father, Jamie Spears, said, okay, I'm going to cave. I'm going to withdraw as the head of this conservatorship. And it was purely, uh, mostly a social media campaign and just attracting all the sympathetic coverage. Uh, you know, whether you care about Britney Spears or not, it kind of shined a very harsh spotlight in this whole system of conservatorships in this country. I mean, look, there are times when somebody doesn't have the mental capacity to make decisions for themselves and loved ones have to step in. I get that. And, you know, Britney's had a lot of mental health issues, to say the least. But she's able to work, and, you know, the idea that she said, you know, she claimed she couldn't even date whoever she wanted to, that she wanted to have uh, another baby, and on and on and on. So, Britney's lawyer says, this is a vindication for Britney. We are disappointed, however, by their ongoing shameful and reprehensible attacks on Ms. Spears. So, clearly, there's no love lost here. Uh, the lawyer for Jamie Spears says, okay, we're pulling it back. But uh, meanwhile, he's the unremitting target of unjustified attacks. He does not believe that a public battle with her daughter is helping her helping anyone. It certainly wasn't helping him. You know, it made him into sort of, you know, enemy number one in the entertainment world. Uh, you know, Britney didn't have any other options. Like, she had to go public. She had to use the media. She had to use her Instagram account to try to free herself. And I totally was on board with this. Hashtag free Britney. Finally becoming a reality. Well, that's just one of the many things that we're uh, changing on Media Buzz. I mean, I'm not going to spend more than uh, 45 seconds on it, but I think there's a lot of public interest just given that she's this, you know, pop superstar. Also, uh, getting a lot of traction online yesterday is a report that Rachel Maddow is, quote, strongly considering leaving MSNBC when her contract is up next year. Now, my first thought was, well, you know, when your contract is up, Sometimes your agent will put something out in the press as a kind of a negotiating ploy, you know. It'd be a really good idea if you paid her many, many, many more millions of dollars because she may not want to do this that much longer. But I don't think that's what's going on here. And from my knowledge of Rachel, uh, who I used to interview and who I know, in fact, she's been doing this. She's been holding that. She's the top-rated host on MSNBC. She's been doing this for, doing the math here, 13 years, 12 or 13 years. In fact, I remember talking to her at the one of the 2008 conventions. She was going to start that fall. She had been this Air America host. She had made the rounds as a guest on many programs. Um, she had been on MSNBC a lot, and now she's going to get her own show. And the one thing I said to her was, kind of laughable, I says, you know, just don't turn into like a cookie cutter host. 
keep your voice. That's the most important thing you can do on television is to be yourself. Well, she didn't need me to tell her that. And obviously, she has a very distinctive voice. Um, the most prominent liberal, probably on television, and certainly at MSNBC. Um, look, a lot of people don't like what she says, and a lot of people love what she says. That's when you're in the opinion business, that comes with the territory. And obviously her ratings are down, like everybody's ratings are down to some extent. Uh, and she took a lot of heat for all the attention she paid, you know, for a couple of years to the Russia investigation, which obviously didn't wind up leading to any direct charges against President Trump, uh, now trying to adjust to the Biden era. But I think what comes across in her agent or spokesperson is quoted as saying, nothing's been decided yet, so she could well decide to stay. But I think what's going on here is I think she's a little burned out after 12 years of the primetime grind. And the Daily Beast was the first to report extensively on this and says that she's kind of intrigued by podcasting and streaming video. So look, we're in an age now where Rachel Maddow, I mean, Megyn Kelly just did this, can say, you know what, I'm going to be my own media brand. I don't have to work for anybody. You know, she was very close with Phil Griffin, who had been the president of MSNBC forever. He left at the end of last year, beginning of this year. Rashida Jones now runs that network. And it may just be like she feels like it's time to move on. And she has talked over the years about work-life balance. Uh, she and her partner live together, I, I think this is still the case, in western Massachusetts. So there's a lot of commuting back and forth. Um, and uh, she may just say, look, I could be my own boss. I can work whenever I want. I can still make lots of money. Uh, I, I can be my own brand. And that's got to be tempting. On the other hand, MSNBC is a pretty good platform for her. All right. I got some serious business here. By the way, it's Friday. I hope you have uh, good plans for the weekend. Uh, and I'm going to start off on a somber note with number one. And that is the absolute friggin' mess in Afghanistan. I mean, the Taliban now control about two-thirds of that country just about two weeks before President Biden was to complete. August 31st was the target date, the final pullout of the remaining U.S. military forces in that war-torn country. Uh, the Taliban now also control about half of the provincial capitals. One capital after another is falling. Essentially, the Afghan government and the Afghan military are in control of a shrinking bit of territory that includes Kabul, the capital, and two other big cities, and that's about it. Now, if you're of a certain age, what this has to remind you of, and I thought about this when Biden announced the pullout, is what happened in what we used to call Saigon in 1975, when President Ford completed the American uh, pullout there. Uh, after the long, long, increasingly unpopular war uh, in Vietnam. And then suddenly there were these humiliating pictures of helicopters airlifting remaining U.S. personnel out of the embassy in Saigon before the communist uh, North Vietnamese took it over. Um, renamed it, what, Ho Chi Minh City? Uh, and so here's why... This has been such a conundrum. This doesn't break down along the typical left-right lines. In fact, President Trump cut a deal with the Taliban. He wanted out. He campaigned against forever wars. Uh, and U.S. forces would have been withdrawn by this past May under the Trump-Taliban agreement, except 
President Biden comes in. He wants to take a fresh look at it. He ends up essentially following the same policy, but delays it until the fall. I, I saw uh, one of the press releases from Trump the other day was like, oh, if I was still president, this never would have happened. Except, you know, the truth is Trump had the U.S. on the same path. Now, what's somewhat stunning and has taken uh, the Biden administration and maybe the, our country by surprise is how quickly um, the Afghan military has caved here. And when this happens so quickly, with one city after another for, falling to the Taliban forces, what you have here is a military that doesn't really want to fight. They're cutting and running. Uh, look, they're also taking casualties. It's going to be a humanitarian disaster. And now, in the face of this disaster, uh, Biden is sending 3,000 troops back to Afghanistan for the sole purpose of getting Americans out safely, including the remaining Americans uh, at the embassy in Kabul. Uh, I hope it doesn't come to, you know, those horrible pictures from Saigon from so long ago of Americans having to be airlifted out. Uh, the Biden administration has made an appeal to the Taliban to leave the U.S. embassy alone. I don't know why the Taliban would listen at this point. Um, and it's just been, here's the two different ways to look at it. On the one hand, and, you know, when you're going to see a lot of, you already are seeing a lot of retired generals on TV. The, the media foreign policy establishment is very hawkish, much more hawkish than the American people, much more hawkish uh, than maybe even the press as a whole. Uh, it's always like we, always, we just need more troops and we just need another year. We just need another six months. I mean, Barack Obama went through this where he ordered a surge in Afghanistan just to stabilize the situation and then started withdrawing troops. The fact is, the Soviets couldn't do it, other occupying forces couldn't do it, it's a treacherous terrain, and the Taliban just play the long game, they just play the waiting game, knowing eventually Americans would lose patience and would pull out. So you, on the one hand, you could argue, look, it was only uh, 3,000 or 5,000 troops that was holding on to the fragile peace there, why didn't Biden just leave them there? On the other hand, if all that was propping up the Afghan government and the Afghan military was the presence of those American troops, is it fair to ask our young men and women to make sacrifice, to put themselves in harm's way, after two decades in which the Afghan government could never kind of um, resolve the civil war there? I mean, plenty of time to negotiate some kind of peace, plenty of time to solidify its hold on the country. Couldn't do it. And that's why I think President Biden has made this very argument. Why stay there if the government is always on the verge of collapse? And the government was corrupt, you know, you know, in addition to the fact that we lost a lot of American lives and a lot of our brave soldiers came back wounded from Afghanistan. We poured billions into that country trying to rebuild it, trying to establish something approaching a Western-style democracy. It was never going to happen. Afghanistan was never really a unified country, ever. It was always this sort of combination of, of, of warring tribes. The Taliban, those who were loyal, you know, the religious aspect, the Kurds. And so it's an absolute mess. And I just saw a, a, no, a new statement from Trump listing Afghanistan as one of the many things, the border, other things, and he actually said, do you miss me yet? Now, the press is pushing back, 
And I've noted two different instances at the briefings. And these used to, you know, during wartime, Donald Rumsfeld, um, Pentagon briefings, State Department briefings were a big deal. Now, not so much. Uh, because Americans have tuned this out. Like, they don't want to think about Afghanistan anymore after 20 years. Look, we went in there with a noble purpose. Osama bin Laden was sheltered by the Taliban, used it as a staging ground for international terrorism, and eventually pulled off 9-11. And so we toppled the Taliban. We made them pay a price. We ultimately got... Uh, bin Laden a decade later. But at the moment, I don't think there's a lot of international terrorism emanating from Afghanistan. It's a civil war. It's always been a civil war. That was the problem in Vietnam. It was a civil war between the North and the South. And, you know, we sent uh, hundreds of thousands of troops to Vietnam and ultimately couldn't stave off the collapse of South Vietnam. So, at the State Department briefing, CBS reporter Christina Ruffini was taking on the spokesman, Ned Price, who was saying, well, you know, this doesn't change the mission, and we're still going to be out by August 31st. And she said the following, I respect you, and we all know you have a job to do, but there is no way you can sit there and say that the people of Afghanistan, watching the Taliban take over provinces, watching their country crumble, are now going to watch American diplomats get on military planes and leave the country, that that sends a signal to, that the U.S. is with them in the long haul diplomatically. And Price came back and said, well, look at what we've been doing. Look at the investment we've made in Afghanistan. But she was right. The Afghan people aren't dumb and they see what's going on. At the Pentagon briefing, Fox reporter Lucas Tomlinson challenged the spokesman there, John Kirby, who was saying, well, you know, everything's on track and this is just an um, unexpected mission that we're going to carry out. And he said, that makes no sense, John. You're putting in 3,000 troops. And Kirby interjected, I know what you're saying, Lucas. I'm, I'm saying of the original footprint plans, that's still continuing, but we are adding troops for this specific and narrow focus. So two aggressive reporters calling out the spokesman for trying to peddle reality that just doesn't match what's going on. The facts on the ground, as we used to say at the height of these wars. All right, number two, uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the Democrats then immediately in the Senate passing a blueprint for a $3.5 trillion bill that would just be sort of this Democratic wish list of programs, housing, healthcare, climate change, you name it. Well, now this has hit a bit of a roadblock. And I always knew this would happen because the Democrats have such a thin majority, essentially a working majority of three votes in the House. So a group of nine more moderate House Democrats, the Washington Post and others report, have gone to Nancy Pelosi and said they're not going to vote for this $3.5 trillion budget blueprint. Remember, the liberals want to tie them together. It's actually about $500 billion in new spending for roads, bridges, tunnels, transit, ports, broadband. And... But anybody can threaten to pull the plug here. So these House Democrats have signed a letter, there's nine of them, telling the Speaker that they're not going to vote for the $3.5 trillion blueprint, which a lot of them think is too expensive anyway, unless they get the infrastructure bill first. So the letter says, some have suggested we hold off on considering the Senate infrastructure bill for months 
until the budget reconciliation process is completed. We disagree. With the livelihoods of hardworking American families at stake, we simply can't afford months of unnecessary delays and risk squandering this once-in-a-century bipartisan infrastructure package. It's time to get shovels in the ground and put people to work. Now, I actually sympathize with this point of view. Uh, you actually got nine, uh, excuse me, you actually got 19 Republican senators to come together. Rare moment, something that the, the, the many, many pundits said that Biden would never pull off, to pull off this trillion-dollar bill. Congress should go ahead and pass it. But the liberals don't want that because they're afraid of losing their leverage on the $3.5 trillion, which is what really uh, sets their hearts aflutter. So you have a kind of an impasse, because anybody can blow this up now, between the liberals who want to wait for the $3-plus bill, which is going to take at least a couple of months to hammer out with so much money at stake. Remember, this will be a Democrat-only bill. probably won't get a single Republican vote. And the more moderate uh, Democrats who think $3 trillion is just kind of a crazy budget-busting number and says, take what we can get now. Take this bipartisan deal. Pass it. We've got the votes to pass it, except they may not have the votes because of this impasse in the House. In the end, I think that the president will have to lean on his party, push something through. I don't know whether this happens right away or it takes a couple of months, but, you know, it is true. Stuff happens. They could jeopardize the bipartisan deal. What if a single Democratic senator dies or, uh, or suddenly has to retire in the Senate? Then they don't have the majority anymore to push it through. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Number three, the census. So there's been a lot of attention uh, to the 2020 census, which just came out yesterday, because it shows the diversity, the increasing diversity of the American population for the first time like, ever since the founding of the country. The number of people who, you have to say, identify as white, the number of white people in America has shrunk between 2010 and 2020. Remember, the census goes back to 1790. It's the first time the number of white people has gone down, uh, certainly as a proportion of the country. So here are the numbers um, for the first time. The number of percentage of white people is below 60%. It had been 63.7% a decade ago. It's now 57.8% in 2020. Now, that's still a majority of the country, but all the demographers predict that we're headed toward a majority-minority country, whether it takes another 10 years, whether it takes another 20 years. Um, now, the largest and steadiest gains in the census were among Latinos. Uh, they are now up to 18.7% of the population, uh, the black population held steady at 12.1%. Asian people doubled their share to 6%. So you've got strong growth among Latinos and among uh, Asians and somewhat shrinking of, of whites. Now, in political terms, um, metropolitan areas did better than were expected. That helps the Democrats because, remember, there's a lot of redistricting and obviously gerrymandering, something both parties do as a result of the census. The rural areas lost the most. I think suburban areas continued to be strong, but it was the metropolitan areas which there was thought, a thought was if minorities are undercounted, then the metropolitan areas will lose a lot. And so just to look at the top 10 cities, just something I always like to do. Since I grew up in New York, always remember New York was 8 million people, 8 million people. And then I think it drifted more towards 7 million people as the city ran into rough times and... and um, 
lost population. Then it came back to eight. Now, to a lot of people's surprise, New York City, 8.8 million people, so almost 9 million people living in those five boroughs as the number one city. L.A., I always thought of as having 3 million. Well, in this new census, 3.9 million, almost 4 million people living in Los Angeles. And that's not even counting Los Angeles County and the surrounding counties. It's a monster of a metropolitan area. Chicago's number three, 2.7 million. And then you have Houston at number four with 2.3. But Phoenix, for the first time, has now come into the top five. The rapidly growing Phoenix area, 1.6 a million, beating out Philadelphia, which drops to number six, by about 5,000. So it's a technicality, but still. And then, you know, it's all Sunbelt. You have Phoenix at number five, San Antonio at 1.4 million, San Diego at 1.3 million, and Dallas at 1.3 million. So if you look at the top 10, it's almost all the growth is in the Sunbelt. And that's been the trend for a long, long time. If you take out New York, Chicago, in Philadelphia, the other seven cities, all in the southern and western part of this country, which therefore, of course, increases political clout in terms of congressional seats and just the sheer numbers. Houston, Phoenix, San Antonio, San Diego, Dallas, L.A. I left out number 10, San Jose, just over 1 million. I mean, when I was growing up, San Jose was famous for a song, Do You Know the Way to San Jose? But that's before the Silicon Valley era, uh, boosted that into a major metropolitan area. And so San Jose, the seventh out of 10 uh, cities by population to be in the Sun Belt. Let's move on now to number four. The number of new daily coronavirus cases holding steady at about 125,000. It's still a horrific number, but at least it hasn't gone up in the last few days. Um, now, federal regulators, we're talking here about the FDA, approving this morning uh, booster shots, authorizing extra doses for two of the most widely used vaccines for people who have weaker immune systems. That means additional shots could be available as early as this weekend. That's great news. Medical experts are applauding this because you have this population that's more susceptible uh, to COVID. And therefore, they'll be able to get these shots. The FDA authorization came as Biden administration officials appear increasingly convinced that boosters for the broader population will be necessary. So my only problem with this is, why didn't the FDA do this a month ago? We have all the data on, on these vaccines. Obviously, some people need boosters more than others. And I know there's going to be now a long process to get the Moderna uh, booster approved. Some of those clinical trials are still going on. It just goes to my rant this week that the FDA is moving too slowly. Nobody is saying that you dis disregard the science. It's just that they clearly decide to do this. And then there's just the bureaucracy. There's not even a permanent head of the FDA. I think the FDA could move more quickly. All right, number five, I have a column today about the California recall. And what's interesting here is that Larry Elder, a conservative Republican, African-American radio talk show host for a very long time, actually has a shot now. He's in at 23% in the latest poll. And you might say, well, that's way down. Yeah, but it's a two-part process in the Golden State where Gavin Newsom, in the latest poll that I saw, has slipped. 51% saying he should be recalled, 40% saying he should hold on to his job. That's the first thing that takes place. If he can't rally the Democrats by mid-September and he is recalled, then it goes to who is the highest total of the remaining candidates. And in a multi-candidate field, 
a Larry Elder could win with 23% or 25% or something of that. But now there's a movement in the press uh, to dredge up. And this is totally fair game. You know, as a radio talk show host, he says a lot of provocative things. He talks, he's been skeptical about climate change. He's been skeptical about secondhand smoke. He said provocative things. Uh, and even in his campaign, he said provocative things about firing bad teachers. I bet that's pretty popular, actually. He wants to fire 5 to 7% of the workforce of the faculty in the public schools. And so suddenly you have Gavin Newsom dredging up all of the, let's just say, provocative things that Elder has said on his radio show over the years. It's very different, you know, when you're a radio talk show host. You're trying to get people to call in. You're trying to get a following, break through the static, get your ratings up. Very different than when you go into the world of politics. Um, now, Elder's people say, well, he's being taken out of context. Uh, he's not. He does believe in climate change. He just challenges some of the methods and so forth. But the press has very much gotten into this now. And so LA Times, San Diego Union Tribune, now going over you know, the tapes or the transcripts of the Larry Elder show and using it to try to knock him down. Well, it shows you that they're taking him more seriously. Uh, it also shows you there's a bit of panic now uh, because the assumption was, well, Gavin Newsom will win, he'll pull it out, and California will continue to have a Democratic governor. There's only, I think, one other candidate running as a Democrat. He's a YouTube personality. I mean, California is just weird. Let's just come out and say it. Caitlyn Jenner is running. Uh, she's down at like 3 or 4%. Celebrity candidate, not going anywhere. Uh, but, you know, California, weirder things have happened. I mean, Arnold, 2003, he became governor for any one re-election uh, because of the recall that year. So the race is getting a lot more interesting. And finally, I'm going to throw in number six. And I've got a programming note. S.E. Cup uh, writes a column for the New York Daily News. She is a host on CNN, somebody I know a little bit, has an extremely candid, uh, agonizing column today, or yesterday in the Daily News. She writes about suffering from anxiety and how much worse it is. And the first thing to note is that she says she has been seeking treatment. Now, this is a hard thing to write about, folks, when you have mental issues. There's so much focus on... Simone Biles, uh, the gymnast in the Olympics, and Naomi Osaka, the tennis player. But, you know, journalists aren't immune. So let me tell you what Essie Cup says. She says, to say I struggled to find something to write about this week is an understatement, not because there's not plenty of news, but because I haven't been able to read or watch any of these stories without spiraling into an uncontrollable sense of panic and fear. For the past week, I've been stuck in a deep black hold of anxiety. It's been exhausting. So she's seeking treatment. She hasn't asked CNN for a time off, but she might. The, increasingly the increasing divisiveness of American politics was also disorienting and traumatic, she says. People who are my friends are now political foes. Things I thought we cared about were no longer important to many, like facts and science, she says. You can agree or disagree with her. In the midst of a deadly pandemic, worrying about things we once took for granted, going outside, Going back to school, traveling, now had a proper purpose. Indulging my anxieties during COVID felt good and appropriate. Worrying about my job, my kid, my parents, my town, my community, that all felt totally deserved. But she says, now, the anxiety I nurtured and cultivated over the years became an absolute monster during the perfect storm. Pandemic, politics, problems. Now, every ambulance I passed was going to my house. Every call was going to be bad news. Every step I was convinced was going to be my last. 
Simple things became impossible to making a decision from what to buy at the grocery store to which words to use in a conversation. It's agonizingly difficult. And so finally, says S.E. Cup, the only thing I can seem to think clearly about is my anxiety. Somehow I can explain in excruciating detail the contours of my panic, but I can string together a cohesive thought about the stories I've been covering my entire career. Well, good for her. Good for her for grappling with this, for seeking treatment, for writing about it, for going public with it, because you know, you've got to know that lots of people who don't have these platforms, who um, don't have the command of the language to write a column like that, uh, have got to be feeling the same way. You know, the, the, the pandemic, whether you had previous problems with anxiety or depression or just, you know, or an average person struggling to get by, to hold on to your job, to get your kids to school, to try to avoid getting this deadly virus. It's been a really difficult time for the country, really difficult time for all of us. So I applaud when anybody speaks out about these problems. Um, and I think, I hope she beats it. And I wish her all the luck in the world. Uh, that brings me to uh, a little bit of an announcement now. I always wish you a good weekend here, and I always suggest that you watch Media Buzz on Fox 11 Eastern. Next week, I'm taking off. I will have an actual vacation, first real vacation I will have had in about two years. You'll have to get along without the podcast. I guess Fox will post you know, some of the greatest hits and stuff. I'll be back early the following week. I really appreciate uh, the people who have made this podcast pretty popular. I mean, it's not in the realm of these superstar people like Joe Rogan. Um, but it does well. And that makes me want to do it more. And so I'm sure there'll be times during the week when I am trying to focus on having a good time when I'll say, oh, I should talk about that. Or that'd be a great podcast item because I'm just hardwired that way right now. But I'll save it all up uh, when I get back to you. Have a great week while away. We'll put it on Twitter and Facebook and elsewhere. Um, uh, when we return. I'll still be doing Media Buzz next Sunday, so you're not going to completely escape me. And we'll see you soon with more Buzz Media. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. 